this summer with AC Pro and O'Reilly Auto Parts. Right now, get a $15 O'Reilly Auto Parts gift card after mail-in rebate with the purchase of select AC Pro ready-to-use refrigerant products that include a hose and gauge. Beat the heat before you hit the road with AC Pro at your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to Women Winning Divorce. I am your host, Heather Quick. I am an attorney, entrepreneur, author, and founder of Florida Women's Law Group, the only divorce firm for women by women. I love thinking big, thinking outside the box, creating creative solutions for women, and empowering women to win in all aspects of their life. Our approach at Florida Women's Law Group is to provide women with a strategy to not only achieve their objectives, but win at life. I believe that what may show up as adversity is simply an opportunity to change and improve your life. In each episode, I sit down with innovative professionals and leaders who are focused on how you can be your best self before, during, and after divorce. In these conversations, we are looking at how women can win at life. I have the unique opportunity to meet women when they are at a transition period of life. But that is only the beginning to becoming your best self and winning at life on your terms. With our guests, we enjoy the opportunity to explore ways all women can win and enhance their life, no matter where they are in their journey. Because divorce is just a point in life, not the end and not what defines you, rather a catalyst for your growth. Welcome to today's episode of Women Winning Divorce. I'm Heather Quick, owner and attorney of Florida Women's Law Group. My guest today is Courtney Johnson, attorney at Marks Gray here in Jacksonville, Florida. Courtney has a wide variety of experience in premises liability, trucking and auto liability, general negligence claims, aviation law, but those aren't the reasons we've asked her here today, although it would be interesting. Today, we have Courtney here to talk about surrogacy and assisted reproductive technologies law, which she has begun to practice in, and she is a member of the Jacksonville Bar Association Adoptive and Family Law Section, as well as a member of the Society for Ethics and Egg Donation and Surrogacy. Courtney, that was a mouthful, but thank you so much for being here with us, and we've got a lot to unpack there, which I can't wait for our listeners to find out about all of your experience. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I'm sure that your listeners uh, are not interested in premises liability or auto. So uh, <laughs> nevertheless, that is part of my bio, but I'm very excited to talk about all things involving surrogacy and assisted reproduction. And um, there are certainly some tie-ins as to how that those areas of law could affect your work with divorce. So I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, it really, it is because what, you know, we do, it's family law, right? Divorce falls under family law. And very often, uh, you know, people come to us or they ask me when I meet them, well, Sam, what is family law? I've got a family. Do I need you? You know, or what is it? And you would think that it is, but there are so many quite specialties within family law and that address your family, like adoption, surrogacy, um, certainly. And, you know, when we get into the, like you said, the egg donation and things like that. And then once, a, if there is a divorce, oftentimes, you know, there is that intersection and questions, which I think you're going to make for a really interesting conversation for us today, because, you know, on this podcast, we we're talking, um, to women, um, about women and things, maybe they've been through a divorce, they want a divorce, or they know somebody who wants a divorce, and which is pretty much everybody, really, everybody knows somebody who's gotten a divorce. Um, and so, the points of the day, of course. I know, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and anyway, so, you know, this affects women um, and men, but we're, you know, women winning divorce. I think this is a, quite the issue. And when, just so our listeners know, when I met Courtney um, a few months ago, and she told me about this area of law that she's really um, trying to grow her practice in based on her experiences. I thought it would be so fascinating to learn, which it has so far. I've already learned so much from you on this topic. And therefore, there's got to be, I know there are other people out there and women who have maybe been on this journey, have are thinking about it or know somebody who is. And I think they'll find this really helpful today. So I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us today, Courtney. Yes, thank you. So 
today, as we discuss the complexities of surrogacy and assisted reproductive technologies within family law, uh, I think we just got to start at the very beginning. You know, what is surrogacy, and a little bit about how you, how you got to this path. If you don't mind sharing, Courtney. Sure, sure. And and the topic uh, or the phrase assisted reproductive technologies is kind of a mouthful. And <laughs> I understand that. And generally what that means is uh, there are lots of people, uh, you know, it's 2023. There's lots of different ways that people are growing their family. And uh, it's becoming, um, you know, as science advances, there's different ways that people are able to grow their family. And in some of those regards, people might need to seek the help of a doctor, whether they need some extra um, hormonal support or if they need to um, go through an intrauterine insemination that's commonly called IUI. There's lots of acronyms in this kind of area of medicine and law. Um, and then the thing that a lot of people think about, perhaps, that's a little more um comes to mind when you think about going to a doctor for help to have a child is IVF, in vitro fertilization, of course. Um, that's been around since about the early 1980s, so 40 plus years now or so. And that's just I, for everyone's benefit in non-medical terms. It's um, where a, a female's eggs will be harvested through, um, she does a series of hormonal injections for several weeks, things are checked out. Um, her eggs are removed and they are fertilized with sperm in a petri dish in a lab at a at a specialized uh, doctor's office. They're reproductive endocrinologists, the doctors that focus in that area, um, and embryos are made. And so through that process, and that could be because of lots of reasons, um, problems with your eggs, problems with sperm, lots of different, maybe you need to screen for a genetic condition. There's lots of different reasons that people um, undergo IVF. And so then once the embryos are made, those are transferred into the uterus of most commonly of the mother, but it can also be into the uterus of um, a what's called a gestational surrogate. And so um, through uh, my own journey with my husband, so my husband and I, um, I laughed at the beginning and said, depending on the hour when you want to get divorced, hopefully he won't take offense to that. But we've been uh, together since high school and um, been married since I was in law school. And um, we went on a long, long journey to try and build our family that started with appointments and IVF. And we had um, several losses along the way and failed transfers and miscarriages. And it was a really um, challenging time. And um, so we ended up to cut to the chase, we ended up, um, our doctors recommended that we move forward with um, trying to use a surrogate. So that's what we did. So we have a three-year-old uh, little boy who is just the joy of our lives. And uh, we worked with a wonderful, amazing surrogate to have him. And that is an amazing story. And that, you know, I have so many questions. And really first, though, I think for our listeners, because, you know, it wasn't that you just you know, this was not some easy, this was a years long decision before you got to that recommendation, right? It was, it was several years, yes. And so now, and I'm in a lot of time and financial investment in the IVF process and so emotional, I, I, I can only imagine uh, with the losses along the way that now you're not to tell you that, my mind would be just like exploding. Like, where did you even start to, as far as how to do this? How and did it, you find a surrogate? It certainly was. And I, um, at the time, did not know anyone else in my world uh, that had, you know, no one from high school, college, law school, Jacksonville. No, I didn't know anyone that had um, used a surrogate. I didn't know anyone that had been a surrogate. So I really didn't know anything about it. Um, my doctor was wonderful and provided some uh, example, some resources, some agencies that I could consider. There, There's just like, there's adoption agencies. There's also surrogacy agencies that um, work to match surrogates and intended parents. That's what you're called when you're in uh, my position. Uh, and I was also at the time uh, seeing a wonderful uh, mental health counselor who specializes in infertility. She was, was and is extremely invaluable to me. And um, I would recommend anyone going through infertility to also um, seek help in that way. 
but she recommended several agencies to me that she had worked with or that she was aware of. And so basically, I just put my lawyer hat on and started um, calling and interviewing these agencies and just doing some research in the nights and evenings kind of about the process. And I was basically like a sponge, just trying to gather as much information about what we were possibly getting into as I could. And that um, I appreciate you sharing with us because um, it's hard sometimes I know to share you know personal things, but sometimes those our personal experiences do fuel us into an area where we have a lot of passion because we've had a personal experience with it. Now, when you begin searching, are you stuck to Florida because we're both here in Florida? Uh, how does that work? You are not stuck to Florida. So there's agencies all across the country. So we ended up um, connecting with, and I had the the best kind of upfront experience with an agency that was based in California. And they suggested uh, a potential match for us being a surrogate that was in Las Vegas. So we were in Jacksonville. She was in Las Vegas, but she was um, wonderful on paper and definitely someone that we wanted to meet and move forward with. And it's kind of like a mutual interview process. And so that's kind of how that got started. But but no, you're certainly not limited to where you live. There are um, these agencies, they work with couples all over the world. Um, surrogacy is, is still not permitted in some parts of the world. And uh, especially, you know, in some instances for same-sex couples or um, things like that. So there's there's people from all over that come into the United States or from within other states, you know, state jumping, you know, to, they might have an agency here and a clinic here and a surrogate here. So it's, you are not limited to where you are. The, um, you know, and we can talk about this as we get, get going, but the law that applies uh, eventually is the, you kind of, you look at where your surrogate lives and where the child is going to be born. That's the law that applies. Because that's what I was going to ask you, because we've got Florida, California, Nevada, based on your situation and um, how, yeah, how does that work? So you had to look at Nevada law. Then, we did. We did. Yes. Yes. Because that's where he was uh, born. And so how did that work? Because if the agencies in California, she did she have to travel to California? So what we did in our case, um, some people can have their surrogate travel to where their clinic is, their clinic being their doctor's office. Mm -hmm. um, we ended up use, moving and using a, a clinic that was in California. We just, the agency uh, recommended the doctor out there. He worked with surrogates very, a lot. It's uh, surrogacy in general is a lot more developed uh, in California and Nevada and on the West Coast. It's just been it's been a thing there longer than it has been on the East Coast. So there's the practitioners, the doctors, the, mm -hmm. the lawyers, everything. It's there's a lot to choose from out there. So we ended up um, doing that also mostly because we liked the doctor and secondly because it, it's a it was a one hour direct flight for her from Las Vegas to San Diego versus trying to get her to Jacksonville and all that would be required with that. So, um, yeah, so California at the beginning, and then she went, you know, after the transfer, she would go back to Nevada. And um, when we eventually had a pregnancy that stuck, it was our third and final one. And um, she went back and uh, eventually started treating with her own uh, OBGYN that had delivered her own children's and he was our son was born I think it was a hospital where her children were born as well now does as the so let's talk a little bit about the legalities here so I would imagine you find an agency and that would be one of the first contracts you sign with the agency is that correct that is that is and yeah. does that cover that I mean they kind of do they represent the surrogate they do not. Okay. So it's basically just a matching. They they connect uh -huh. the parties together. They, uh, you know, work with them on their journey. There's coordinators that will kind of mm -hmm. work with you on your journey. There's I was um, having already gone through IVF for so many years myself, and I, we had the benefit of our surrogate had been a surrogate before. So we were both very experienced, knew what we were doing. I'm a little bit take charge. I guess that's the lawyer. Um, so we we managed it a lot ourselves. But in some instances, uh, the parties might not speak the same language or they might be, oh, right. you know, they might be even further separated than 13 states or however many we were. And um, so in, in those instances, the agency kind of acts as a go between between the parties. But it just really depends uh, kind of how much you need or want them to be involved. But so that's really that's what they do. So um, 
that's, you have that that's the first contract. The agency. Now you also have a legal relationship, legal relationship with the clinic, right? Because you mentioned the clinic, because um, you ended up moving the embryos to the clinic doctor in California. Yeah. Right. So that's another legal relationship, right? Because they're holding your embryos. Yes. If you want to consider it like that. I mean, the surrogate is the patient. We also are, you know, kept informed as far as there's no, there's no HIPAA waiver or anything like that, that we have to do. We were kept informed as well. Um, And then you have uh, a contract with your surrogate. Yes. So, yes. So in every uh, surrogacy arrangement, the part of the intended parents, as well as a surrogate and her partner or spouse, if she has one, uh, enter into what's called a gestational surrogacy agreement or gestational carrier agreement. And that outlines everything from compensation to the intention of the parties being the most important part of the journey, which is that intended parents, Courtney and Matt, intend to be the mother and father of the child born via surrogacy to a and B at, who are married and but who have no genetic or you know other relationship with this child kind of right. um, and it's the most important thing too is that uh, for lawyers is each uh, parties or the parties are have individual representation so my husband and I had a lawyer she also had a lawyer separate which I think would be definitely you'd have to have it like that because you are both negotiating and absolutely um, yeah needed to be where she you know, the surrogate has their rights as well. Let me ask you this. It just popped in my head. So I apologize for that. But it did when you said compensation, because I knew that the surrogate would be compensated. And I remember what I, I think I thought of this earlier when you and I had spoke, but anyway, I lost it because adoption's different on compensation, right? Like, cause that has a different connotation. And I, I mean, that's my, belief in whatever I've read or seen. Is that is that true? That is true. So the parties that to a surrogacy agree to if it's going to be a compensated uh, journey and if that's permitted in your state, um, it's it's uh, split out. Generally, it's split out through once there's a, a heartbeat confirmation at the doctor's office, then there's whatever set amount that the parties have agreed to as far as what the compensation would be is distributed uh, monthly or on a terms of weeks, things like that. So, but in that, but within adoption, and do you, is that, and I'm, I'm going to ask something that I, I certainly wouldn't know if you would ask me, like, because we don't, all the states are different, but generally speaking, is that you really can't compensate somebody other than maybe their medical and basic living and necessities, right? For an adoption or? I believe that's brain. correct. I believe okay. that's correct. Yeah. I think so too. But, but they're, they're really very different relationships. They are. They're, yes. they're extremely different because essentially you have paid your surrogate and, and contracted with them to carry your, your child. And you're in this case that we're talking about right now, it is your child, but they are the vessel. They are carrying the baby versus generally with adoption, it's their baby, but it's a, it's a different contract. It's not. Yes. Yeah, yours. So I would think it would have to be very in depth with surrogacy because geez, so much can go right, so much can go wrong, and there's just a lot to it. I guess that's why the agency is so important in doing some vetting um, beforehand as far as someone who wants to be a surrogate or thinks they do. Absolutely, yes. So in my experience, and I'm not an agency, obviously, but in my experience, um, the surrogates that are uh, you have to be approved by the agency. There's certain uh, ASRM, American Society for Reproductive Medicine. There's certain guidelines such as you can only have had X number of deliveries. You can, you know, you can't have any serious health complications. Your past pregnancies had to have been relatively stress-free. And they also vet to make sure that the, um, you know, they check things like criminal background and um, credit checks and things like that because it's surrogacy is very much premised on that it's um, a conscious decision by all the parties, it's their intent, wow. they're, they're um, all adults undergoing through the, no one is under duress. Well, there's so much still here I want to talk about, but I think we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And then during um, our break for our listeners, you'll take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever medium you're listening to in order to help other women find us here at Women Winning Divorce. And we will be right back.
Well, we're back from our break. And again, today I'm joined by Courtney Johnson. Now we're gonna, we've been talking about surrogacy law, a little bit about Courtney's journey, and of course some random questions that I threw in there. But um, what I wanna talk a little bit about now is really some of the legalities and particularly within Florida, because there are laws, right, Courtney? There are laws that address surrogacy. So we're not that behind the times in Florida. I mean, at least we, we have, have some statute, laws, right? We have a statute in Florida, yes. Okay, there we go, yes. there we go. Um, and so what does that statute essentially, who is that for? What is, how does that address surrogacy? Sure, so you can find the Florida um, surrogacy statute is section 742.15 in the Florida statutes, and it just governs, um, there's certain things that need to be set forth in your agreement, and it provides for, if you have um, contracted for a gestational surrogacy agreement at the beginning, um, and I didn't say this at the beginning, you know, a minute ago, but um, when you're working with a surrogate to begin with, you know, and you've matched, the next kind of step in the process is that they have to get cleared by your doctor. They do an exam and they look at their medical records. They look at their past pregnancies. They have to get cleared. Then once the doctor says, yep, she's good, that's when the parties move into legal. So that's when okay. attorneys like me get involved representing the intended parents. And then another set of attorneys gets involved representing the surrogate. Um, so that's what I mean when I, that's kind of the context, the phase of things as far as when you get to the agreement. Okay. So our statute in Florida um, sets forth some requirements, and in order to use the um, surrogacy statute, the intended parents uh, must be lawfully married, and that's um, in Florida. And then uh, if you've entered into that, when you go through your surrogacy, it provides for an expedited process to obtain parentage of that baby once they're born. So you go and you um, get an expedited hearing in front of a family law judge and um, get an order saying that, you know, intended mother is the mother and intended father is the father. It kind of goes- now, Because through. in the hospital, they typically come and they, they do the birth certificate registration. So then in Florida, I guess, does that have to be done again? I, yes. Or, okay, okay. Yes. So they're gonna still kind of, operate as if the surrogate is the biological mother on the birth certificate and then usually how soon before you get a court order on that being your baby so you can usually file the petition within a couple of days after the baby is born and then the courts provide for an expedited hearing so it's just it's kind of county specific depending on where you are right. in florida but um it's, it's usually pretty expedited, and especially now. And as you know, in our practice of law, the last three and a half years with a lot by Zoom and things like that, um, it can get done pretty quickly. Which, right, that is that is the, the good thing with that. And I would imagine wherever the, you know, their agencies and um, in some of the bigger cities in Florida, like Tampa, Orlando, Miami, at least the judges have seen this before. The courts have are you know, have seen this, so it's not so foreign. I think if we brought it here in Jacksonville, we need to have it. You're going to have to give an educational seminar first before that starts happening. I think um, the the public in general, as well as the, uh, you know, uh, lawyers and judges and everyone probably could stand to use some education in this area. It's funny, my um, one of my law partners that I worked with for 10 years and saw me go through all of this, and he he, you know, he said, I have learned a lot about this. So it's, <laughs> it's certainly as, but like I said at the beginning, it's 2023 and families are built in a lot of different ways. And I think it's just going to become more and more common. What this week I saw they've, or within the past couple of weeks, it's been um, celebrities that you've seen beyond the Kardashians. There's Chrissy Teigen, Maria Menounos. I might be saying her last name wrong. Um, Aaron Andrews. There, there's several that continue to come oh, at Paris yeah. Hilton a little bit ago, a couple months ago. Um, Kim and Chloe Kardashian. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's becoming, I think it's becoming more a part of the public discussion. Awareness, more because the they've become aware because right when celebrities go through things, it's in the news. You yes. know, unfortunately, Courtney, when you go through stuff, I don't think they put it on the news or <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> so not as many people get to know and understand like that. Okay. And there are a lot more reasons, which I think, that you know, I read the article on the the reporter Aaron Andrews, and it was a similar. It was very similar, I think, to your journey, and you know how it they got there. Like she had had a, a had a lot, lot of trouble, a lot, yeah. a lot of lot of challenges, so. mm -hmm. a lot of challenges, and 
you know, so then it's not that, you know, celebrities are just doing this and so nobody knows they're pregnant, which maybe, I mean, who knows, you know, how, why, but, and maybe that's like, was part of it, but um, at some point when it started, but I think it's helpful for people to get an understanding and have a, a recognition that they're, this, you know, is the only way for many people, many women and couples to have children. And, you know, when you are able to go this route, um, you know, there's, there is a lot, I mean, you've got to really educate yourself and, and surround yourself with the right professionals to help protect you and your rights. Absolutely. Well Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I can't imagine it would be appropriate. At least now there are statutes because it does, you know, they've got to have advocates. They've got to have representation, the surrogate, as well as the parents. And I would imagine a time, you know, long ago before there were under these laws in a lot of states, it happened, but so much could go wrong, right? If you're not protected legally. That's that's for sure. Um, there was an example a couple of years ago where um, Sherry Shepard, she was on the, she's on the view or was, I don't keep mm -hmm. up with that, but um, she and her husband um, went through a surrogacy journey and they, but they used a donor egg. So the baby was not going to be related to Sherry in any way. Um, they, that was the decision she and her husband made in trying to grow their family. And uh, they, in the course of after their surrogate got pregnant, their marriage broke down and they got divorced. And Sherry tried to um, later go back and say, I'm not this child's mother. Don't put me on the birth certificate. Don't have me pay child support. This was in Pennsylvania because that's where their surrogate lived. And the Pennsylvania, it went through its round of appeals and everything. And the, the court in Pennsylvania said, nope, we're looking at the uh, intention that you and your husband entered when you entered into this agreement. And it was that you were this child's mother and therefore you're responsible. So as far as I know, it's uh, the baby is now, set, you know, five or so years old and she's paying child support. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's also important because you and I had this conversation, how the courts here in Florida would treat something like that when is similar situation. Well, not well, I guess a similar situation, but it's not the same because the laws in Florida would be a little bit different, right? If you maybe you were the donor, but I think you, you and I talked about it in, in the intent of the parties um, to parent that child and to have that child would control, and you know, it would be it would be an interesting case in the divorce um, on how to handle that. Because they're the courts are going to have to decide the best interest of the child between the husband and wife, or you know the married couple that's getting divorced. Yeah, it certainly would, and that brings up a lot of things. You know, there's my realm of things about uh, the medical side of things and the legal in terms of what happened when they were entering into a gestational surrogacy agreement. But then there's things that you might touch on that I don't, like time sharing and child support and things like that. So it certainly would be interesting if that was uh, if that was brought before, hope, knock on wood, hopefully it won't be, but uh, if that was to come before uh, our courts in Florida. Absolutely. Now, I, I do have a question for you because, you know, within the contract for, you know, because as the intended parent and, you know, contracting with the surrogate, you're already um, embarking on, on a huge financial commitment. I mean, is that fair to say? That's fair and to say. Down this road. It's so, fair to say, but actually, when I think the math on it is like when you do the uh, consideration of how long someone's pregnant, it out amounts to like only you know five dollars an hour or something like that. It's uh, you know, but that that's fair to say. But fair to say, it is it is considerable um, financial commitment. Now, I have a question for you on the legalities, even though this doesn't have to do with the divorce, but. Um, certainly within that contract you cover because, okay, this person is embarking to, to carry your baby and yes, they're getting compensated, but what if something happens to them as a result or complications of the pregnancy or anything in their health? Um, like what kind of liability do you as the intent to the intended parents have? Um, and let's just say they, their child survived, but the mother didn't or something like that. I mean, do you guys have to cover that in a contract? Sure. So, um, you, of course, need to have a well-versed uh, assisted reproduction technology attorney uh, crafting these agreements, but um, mm -hmm. the agreements often call for uh, a certain dollar amount for loss of reproductive organs, if that was to be uh, something that occurred after the journey, 
or things like that, you're obligated as the intended parents to keep that. There's an escrow account that you um, have in place throughout the journey, and you're obligated to keep that open uh, as long as the, you know, for up to a certain period of time after the child is born to cover all medical bills and things like that that might pop up, you know, how those are. Um, and then in terms of liability, would make be making sure the contract obviously doesn't um, waive anyone's rights as far as medical malpractice or things like that. Um, so there's there's lots of considerations. Yeah, and I think that that is why it's so important uh, on both sides to have that. Now, are there any circumstances, this I know I didn't ask you before either, where the surrogate could you know, potentially have some liability where you as the intended parents would have a cause of action against her for anything like you guys have to deal with in these contracts? Uh, there's certainly provisions that, you know, kind of it's they so the contracts when you're looking at them, they're anywhere from 40 to 65 pages and they are dense to say the least. And so yeah. it certainly covers all kinds of, um, you know, what if scenarios. Now, if you're asking if the child was to be born with a genetic condition or something like that. No, that's not, you can't have a claim for the surrogate again because of that. Yeah, I would, I would um, think not. But if they did something risky? Uh, I'm not going to say no. I don't know how the courts would treat that, especially given with different states. And, um, you know, yeah. it's, it's not uh, standardized across the country. There's certain states that have statutes for surrogacy. There's certain states that mm -hmm. Uh, allow for surrogacy through their case law. And then there's uh, a small handful of states in the country where surrogacy is completely illegal. So um, it's it just really depends. You you have to have someone that knows what they're doing in the, in that state and is licensed in that state. I would I would say so because there's so much at stake and you want it done correctly. Absolutely. Ever. Absolutely. The, so what's at stake? I mean, the parents want to be that child's parents at the end of the day. And the yeah. surrogate does not want to be that child's parent. Um, you know, and I have a wonderful relationship with my surrogate, and I think she would uh, consider her happily probably consider herself to be like an aunt or a godmother type uh, to mm -hmm. my child. But she certainly doesn't want to be parenting him, especially at age three. <laughs> <laughs> but it certainly does. I mean, and you've had a great experience with your surrogate, and I'm sure a lot of not practicing in this area, but I would imagine a lot of the laws have come out of maybe things that went wrong in the past or especially in California and Las Vegas where they're a little just a bit more ahead of the times out West, um, yes. you know, to really where they're able to address it and, you know, try to address all these things that can and or have gone wrong. Yes, for sure. For sure. Now, um, I want to, okay. So, for you, even though you lived in Florida, your surrogacy law was all, all that law was hand was really under Nevada law. Is that correct? It was. And um, so, if someone was coming from another state and using a surrogate in Florida, they would then need to abide by there. They would be controlled by Florida law, not where the parents came from. They would. They would. So, in that case, if you were coming from Texas and your surrogate was in Florida. Your surrogate would have a Florida attorney and you likely would as well. Now, you know, I, I want to ask briefly because you and I, I know talked about this before the show on the health insurance because, and I would imagine the agency, this would be something that they would um, certainly have inquired about, right? Maybe, but like your surrogate, obviously you want somebody who has health insurance, right? But they don't have to or? How does well, that so a lot of uh, health insurance policies exclude surrogacy. So kind of how the process works and the agencies are somewhat involved, but there's actually two or three companies that um, review insurance policies in the context of surrogacy agreements. And they advise as to whether the policy is covers surrogacy or not. And then they also uh, provide or advise of some additional policies that you might could buy during open enrollment on the private market. Um, so kind of how it works is the first part of the journey when you're at the IVF doctor, when you're when the surrogate's getting checked out and she um, gets on a medication regimen to prepare her body for the embryo transfer. And then assuming everything goes well and the, the, a pregnancy takes place and the baby um, keeps growing, 
the, the first 10 weeks or so of the pregnancy, that's all done at the IVF doctor. And that is not covered by insurance. Even if the surrogate has insurance, that's not covered by her insurance. So that is generally self-pay for the intended parents. Uh, and then when the surrogate is released to her, so you kind of, you graduate from the IVF doctor once you get um, eight, 10 weeks or so pregnant um, and you begin treating with your OBGYN of choice. Uh, if the surrogate's policy provide, allows for surrogacy, then uh, she could be treated and that, that insurance would kick in. The intended parents are responsible for uh, deductibles and anything that might be out of network or out of pocket uh, generally. And then um, once that baby is born, the baby is on the intended parents, uh, on this parents uh, now uh, on their health insurance. Health insurance. Wow. That is a lot. Again, and then we're still only on the very surface of all of that, but still <laughs> fascinating for sure. It's time for another break. So we're going to take a short break and be right back. And for our listeners, if you're enjoying this show and have listened to other episodes of Women Winning Divorce, we would ask that you leave us a five-star review so that others can find our podcast and please subscribe so that you will never miss an episode of Women Winning Divorce. We'll be right back. We're back from our last break. And again, today I'm joined by Courtney Johnson. We're discussing surrogacy, common legal issues around surrogacy. And finally, in this last segment, you know, I've got to bring in an element of divorce and family law. So um, I want to talk about the different aspects of assisted reproductive technology and surrogacy, but then how it would intersect with divorce. Um, which I know nobody, you know, particularly wants to think about um, or go, you know, or when they're going through any of this, but it happens. And so we might as well kind of talk about some of the things that would be an issue. Um, now, Courtney, we talked about the surrogacy agreements in the last segment, and that's really for the process. You can't really have an agreement necessarily. Um, I don't know. I don't think you could do like a premarital agreement about like surrogacy or anything as it relates to the children because premarital agreements don't deal with the children necessarily as far as how they're raised but what about the embryos so when i at the beginning when i was talking about kind of ibf and how there's different layers of what you might go through in terms of treatment to grow your family um so some people go you know ivf is kind of like the the top thing that that's like your extreme case, you're doing IVF and you make embryos. Um, oftentimes, if, if you're lucky and you have a good, good cycle and good result, you'll have more, you'll, you might end up with more embryos than children you're eventually going to have. And so um, those embryos could be frozen and stored. Uh, there's other instances just in assisted reproduction in general, where people are freezing eggs or freezing sperm. Um, maybe you, uh, you know, maybe Maybe you are getting up in age, but aren't ready for children yet. And you decide it's probably best for me to freeze my eggs. Or maybe you're going, you know, maybe you've been diagnosed with a, with cancer or another medical condition and you need to freeze your eggs or freeze your sperm. And so there, that's kind of the, that's kind of the context as to why people might even have frozen embryos or frozen genetic material. And I forgot even what you had asked, but I'll just, <laughs> Heather. so in the context of a divorce, you know, I think it's important and I, I keep hammering this, but I think it's important to say um, more and more people are going to be utilizing assisted reproduction, um, not only just as science advances, but I think that companies and businesses are um, beginning to offer those benefits to their employees more. So I think it's just going to become more and more commonplace. And so perhaps when you know, of course, no one sets out to get divorced, especially not when they're trying to build their family. But like you said, things can happen. And so I think in the context of considering a divorce, a client that comes to you for divorce, um, you know, one thing that you might want to include on your checklist as a practitioner is, you know, to find out if uh, that either that individual individually has, and we'll just use women since you represent women, if, if they have frozen yeah. eggs um, or if they had frozen embryos together with their partner. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason that kind of comes into play is because clinics will require a written agreement between the parties uh, that kind of says, this is what we want to do with our embryos in the event of death, divorce, et cetera. So. Which that is, you know, that that's where it would be, I think, quite could be potentially um, highly litigated and 
you know, a lot of ethical questions there because let's start with the embryos, all right, that have, you know, and I would say if it has both the genetic material of both the parties, that's going to be the biggest issue. And whether you have a live child or not, we, we know they've got them there. Um, there are still a lot, as you know, and, and I certainly know, there's a lot more steps. That doesn't, that doesn't just mean you, you've got a potential baby right there. We wish it was quite so easy. It's not. But it's definitely a potential that you worked really hard and you both, you know, uh, invested in that financially. But um, it's, not, it's not a human, but it's not not a living thing, right? So it's just very... You know, what'd you call, what'd you say earlier? Is it quasi? It's like quasi property. So they yeah. are, the embryos are really considered, um, they're given kind of a special status mm -hmm. because of the potential that exists for, for human life. Um, obviously, like you said, you need a lot more things for an embryo to grow and develop and become a baby, but they certainly have that potential in the right environment. And they do. And they're, hey, they're the first step that you need yes. for that. And so, you know, they're, um, so we have, uh, you know, when you divide your property in the state of Florida, it's basically 50-50 if it's marital. And that would be considered marital property. And, we'll, and, you know, I don't think a court would give, you know, wife half and the husband half <laughs> of the embryos. I just don't, no. I don't see that working. Um, and, you know, and I'm not equating for all the listeners. I, I'm making a comparison. Um, but pets and, and people love their pets as do I um, but they're not the same as children in a divorce and they are despite what you know how very many people feel about them um, they're going to be treated just straight as property they don't get a quasi property nothing even though they're living but they're property so that to me is interesting because there's so many more ethical moral um, conversations and beliefs on these embryos but we have and and I think that would be the hard thing, you know. I we're representing the woman. She's like, hey, we did have a baby, but I want more. He didn't want more. Maybe that's why we're getting divorced. But I know they're sitting right there, and I can give, you know, our son a brother or a sister because I can carry the baby. I can do that on my own. But the husband may not agree and say, well, I I don't want more than one child. Like that's why we're divorcing. And then, you know, but is the court going to order them destroyed? Does the court like? have that power. I don't think they should, but. So we haven't, it doesn't appear that we've faced that specifically head on in Florida, but the way that other courts have handled that is they will look to, first, they're going to look to the agreement that the party signed. Mm -hmm. And when they went through IVF and made those embryos, you have to sign agreements before you even do the first injection. And you'll say, you know, we agree that the embryos should be you know, A is they should be discarded. B is they should be donated to science. C is, and I'm just giving examples. Yeah. C is they should be donated to another family, um, et cetera. So, but it, so the way courts have treated that is they say, no, you signed this agreement. It's notarized. You're, this is what controls. Sorry, wife, tough luck. Right. And the general kind of idea on that is the courts are not going to force someone to become a parent against their will. Right. Um, there have been, there was an exception uh, in one state where um, the the parties had gone through IVF, made embryos, and then later the um, wife had cancer, and uh, she argued that they then they got a divorce, and she wanted the custody of the embryos. And custody is not the right word in terms of divorce, but she wanted to take, yeah. she wanted to use the embryos for the, give them a chance at life, and. Um, the court ordered that because of her, this was her only chance to have a genetic child, um, and therefore she was deemed, she was allowed to use the embryos. Now, there would have to be, I assume, in, in the context of a divorce agreement, the um, father, in that instance, I would think you'd want to maybe trans, you know, transition his uh, role instead of a genetic father. You'd want to make it clear that he was maybe just a sperm donor or make it clear to the extent that you could under the law that he's um, not responsible for child support. He's not subject to any, and he doesn't get any benefits or obligations of being a parent to that child. So the courts have kind of treated it a little differently. Uh, and I believe it's Arizona, interestingly, uh, the courts award embryos to the spouse who's going to bring them, who's, who wants to use them, who, wow. intends, who intends to allow the embryos to develop to birth. Um, so it's really just an interesting, con you know, context. And I think um, 
in this post Dobbs era that we're in now, we could certainly see some some changes in that regard as to how um, courts treat embryos. Yeah, so it could I, continue to develop. I, I think that it will, and it and it's really important, and especially for our listeners because you know we are, you know, talking surrogacy, but all these assisted reproductive technologies, and they exist out there, and and very many people, you know, may have that, and it's and it's a tough decision because, um, you know, I, I you know I know I've had family gone through it. It's a lot to just to get your embryos, but then if you want to go. You're like, let's go through this again. It's a lot. It's like a 50-50 chance of making it, but yet it can be hard to say goodbye to that and that hope. Um, but you know, whether or not you you move forward. So and and you too, as a married couple, do own them. I mean, you you, you do pay in the clinic, you own them, yeah. you own that, you pay for it, you pay a storage fee, and it's just um the court, some, I think they're, we're going to have that at some point because, I mean, the statistics are pretty high with the amount of people who, who have to use some kind of, um, you know, assisted reproductive technology, right, Courtney? Yeah, it's currently um, one in six people have to use help, need, has suffered with infertility. So, I mean, that's just huge. So we're bound to see it. We know, you know, hey, at least if they're married. 50% of them are getting divorced at some point, right? So yeah, that's what the statistics say. Yeah. Um, so it's so, certainly an area, you know, I know in, in the context of divorce, you're primarily concerned with house and IRAs and things like that. But it's certainly, I think, something that will become more and more um, a part of your practice as um, people that utilized those, you know, the health science to have their family then get divorced, unfortunately. So well, yeah, I think that it's just um, they're going to have to make the decision. And if they can't work through it, which, which tends to be, you know, a, happens a lot in divorce. I mean, a lot of times people are able to work through it. But this is, you know, and I'll speak from it from the perspective of, you know, the wife, the woman thinking, well, I can carry it, right? I can shoulder this burden. But then you know, I do have sympathy for men thinking, well, I don't want more children out there that I don't even know about, or I, or I already, we already have, like, I don't want more, like, that's just doesn't, doesn't comport with me. Um, you know, maybe I want to move on. And then, you know, you're sitting there continuing to have our children. So I, I recognize that. And I, I am not like fully for, well, yeah, you go, you know, have your embryos, but I think it's sensitive. And I think that if people can't come to an agreement we'll see these decisions in the courts as we move on because that's how then we see the things you know in the law based on people not being able to agree and judges making decisions and interpreting this kind of thing i think so and and the clinic agreements would generally prevail but you and i know you can argue about agreements and what what the parties knew about when they entered into them so i think it'll certainly um become more of an issue as as time goes on well, I think so. And, you know, and, and what you intend and what you expected and, and things, you know, uh, marriage, things didn't go as intended. And, um, you know, uh, a lot of things I think could be argued with the with the right lawyer and the right set of facts that, you know, could could certainly make an impact. But I I so appreciate you being on this show um, today, Courtney. Thank you I, for I having me. I find this area of law fascinating and, and so relevant. I mean, one in six couples are going through some form of, of this and it is, it's really, it's going to affect them. And, you know, the more you know, and then at least you can be sensitive to other people who may be going through this understanding. Um, Absolutely. And I, I really pride myself on bringing that empathy and understanding and situational experience uh, for better or worse, obviously for better, because my son is here and I, you know, but um, being able to, to to share that with my clients and 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 um, just know that, that I, can, I can be a set personal and legal sounding board and offer advice in both areas. Absolutely. Well, and I just think that's so important. And, um, you know, we've reached the, um, you know, I guess lastly, before we go, Courtney, I ask a question usually like within the divorce realm, but, you know, for women, who, who are like on this journey, you know, what advice could you impart to them? Any kind of tips that might just help them, you know, through this because you successfully made 
you know, been through this? Oh my goodness. Well, um, I, it's one of those do as I say, not as I do <laughs> tips, because I think, you know, my husband would, would say that the seven years that we were on our journey, I was a, a, a shell of myself and really just, it was very challenging. I would just say, just keep the, the faith and the hope and uh, be open to new, uh, to, to different ways to build your family than what you might've, you know, envisioned as a, as a little, as a little girl. And, um, it's still beautiful. It's still, I, we're still bonded as ever with our son and it's, it's, it doesn't matter how they get there. The right child is what, you know, your child is your child and they're the child that's meant for you is what I really believe. Well, that is so wonderful. I appreciate that so very much, Courtney. And I know our listeners will as well. And we have reached the end of our show. Thank you so much to our guest this week, Courtney. And um, you can find her at Mark's Gray here in Jacksonville, Florida. And we will have all of her links uh, on the show notes and some links to, to some of her blog posts that are, are specific on this issue that can hopefully help you if anybody is going through this or you are yourself. And of course, if someone you know is going through a divorce or thinking about a divorce, please reach out to us at floridawomensblogroup.com. And you can also join our Facebook group, Women Winning Divorce. The link will be below in the below in the episode description. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we just ask that you give us a five-star review. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Women Winning Divorce. My goal is to elevate your life and the way you are thinking so that you are best equipped to win at life. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe so you automatically get my new shows every week. And I would love to hear from you personally. Come join the conversation on social and join our Facebook group, Women Winning Divorce. We welcome your comments and suggestions. We want to bring you content that helps move your life forward. Women Winning Divorce is the place for an elevated conversation on how women can thrive during times of adversity in order to live their best life. As a major research institution, Arizona State University offers the most online bachelor's degree programs, along with world-class faculty and dedicated support. Discover why ASU is ranked number one in innovation for eight consecutive years. Tap to learn more.